Uh, concurrent with the rise in popularity comes a rise in haters, right? Haters start to come out of the woodwork. And so, you know, best movie, best picture, ah, it wasn't that good. Um, I think a couple months ago, maybe a year ago, I don't know, I don't really pay attention to these things, but there was a song called Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. I had to look that up because I had no idea who Little Nas X is. But anyway, it was like a real popular song at the schools in Philadelphia. My kids would come home singing it, and they're like, oh, this song's all the rage, and you kind of hear it all the time. And I was like, it's the worst song I've ever heard. Um, this takes absolutely no talent to write this song. But um, you got people like me, right? Whenever something rises in popularity, there's always that crowd who they're going to hate on it. And truth be told, I hate on all current music because I'm like muse music was not like it was when I was growing up but I guess that's what happens when you get older and older you you're nostalgic for the old days but in any case uh, th that's basically what's happening here in Jesus's ministry right we have been seeing how he's been blowing up in popularity um, crowds are hearing about his miraculous healing power and how he is uh, ministering to all these folks and they want to see him for themselves and so his popularity is blowing up but with that the opposition against him is also increasingly rising particularly from the religious leaders in fact from mark chapter 2 after the healing of this paralytic man it's it just gets worse and worse from here on out he already ruffled their feathers over declaring this man's sins forgiven and it's only going to get worse as we see throughout the gospel of mark now at first it seems like their issue with jesus is purely theological Right? We, we disagree with this, what, what this man is teaching, but as the book goes on, you begin to realize it becomes increasingly clear that more than just defending the faith, they were really out to defend, the heart of it all was they were really out to defend their own popularity. They saw Jesus as a threat to their own grip on the people. They saw Jesus as a threat to their own adoration amongst the people. People were flocking to Jesus and listening to Jesus instead of them. And this is why they hated him and they eventually wanted to put him to death. And so again, in today's passage, uh, he upsets the religious leaders through uh, declaring this man's sins forgiven who was paralyzed. But now he upsets them again over two other specific situations. And both of these situations that we read about revolve around food right so in the first instance they're upset with him because of who he's feasting with and in the second instance they're upset with him because he doesn't and he and his disciples are not fasting so that's really just how we're going to study this passage along those two main scenes Jesus feasting and then disciples fasting all right feasting and fasting so uh, let's bow our heads one more time in a word of prayer as we study God's word together and let's ask him to speak to us in this time Lord we thank you indeed that you are on your throne that even though our world is filled with uncertainty yes including what's going on with corona but in so many other ways uh, there's just so much instability in this world yet you are on your throne you are king you are sovereign you are in control of all that happens and even the things that are heartbreaking and difficult we know that these are not beyond your control and in fact you're able to even use the hardest of situations and work them for good for the ultimate good and purposes of your glorious kingdom and so God as we uh, sit before you this day as the king Lord we invite you to speak to your people uh, speak what we need to hear 
uh, words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of challenge. You know perfectly uh, how we need to be ministered to, even as we see in this passage. You are the great physician. So would you minister to our, our souls in the way that we need to be ministered to, the exact diagnosis you know and the exact prescription you're able to give. And so would you do these things for our good and for your glory, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, Jesus feasting. So here he is, uh, once again beside the Sea of Galilee, and he's ministering, and he encounters this man named Levi as he and his disciples are walking along. Levi was a tax collector, um, and he calls Levi to follow him. Now, again, as modern readers, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but in Jesus' time, this would have been shocking and scandalous for Jesus to do something like this, given Jesus' status in society and given Levi's status in society. As we know, Jesus, at this time, uh, amongst the people, he was all the rage, right? People realized this is no ordinary man. Uh, he was performing these miracles. Um, everyone wanted to get near him and be with him because it was very evident that the power of God was upon this man. He was some kind of extraordinary prophet. Perhaps even whispers of the Messiah were beginning. Levi, on the other hand, again, was a tax collector. And he's sitting at this booth because how... Uh, how it worked back in this time is especially Levi's situation. Uh, as people traveled south along the sea, it was a big fishing area. So people would have the fish that they caught, produce that they had gathered, and they'd be traveling. And then they would be tax booths every so often where they would collect local taxes for that region. Levi was collecting taxes for the ruler at, th at that time who would have been King Herod. And King Herod was basically friendly with the Romans. So to begin with, Tax collectors at this time were frowned upon because they're collecting taxes for these leaders who are cozying up to the Romans, their oppressors, right? These guys were working with and for the oppressors who are making lives miserable for the Jews. But on top of this, the way tax collecting worked was you just kicked up the portion that Herod was asking for, but you were allowed to ask for more on top of that for your own personal gain. So if Herod was asking for 10%, these tax collectors, for example, could ask for you know, 25% and pocket that 15% for themselves. So it's a very lucrative business. They got very rich off of it, but you could imagine how people felt about this. Not only are you working for Herod, this you know, traitor basically to our people who's cozy with the Romans, on top of that, you're fleecing us, right? Just to get rich yourself. Right? Just to line your own pockets, you're putting this unbearable burden on us and, and taking this money from us. And so again, in our culture, in our day and age, you know, we see those who collect taxes, the IRS, you know, we're, we're not thrilled about it, but we get it. We get it's part of living in this country. But in Jesus' time, tax collectors were viewed as absolute scum. The scum of the earth. Here's what one commentator writes uh, and describes how they were viewed in Jesus' time. When a Jew entered the customs or tax service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in court. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended even to his family. In other words, Levi's mom probably walked around hanging her head in shame because Anytime the topic of what does your kid do for a living, she never wanted to mention it because it was seen as this utterly shameful thing to do, completely immoral lifestyle. 
Yet knowing all of this, knowing full well what Levi did for a living, Jesus looks right at him and he says, follow me. And, and Levi responds to that call. He responds to the invitation of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And not only does Levi begin to follow him, amazingly, Levi invites all his friends to this dinner at his house. He says, come on, I want you guys to meet this Jesus. And so it says uh, that verse six, uh, in, in our passage, verse 15, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, when Mark uses this word sinners, he's using it in a very like, specific and technical way. He's not just talking like sinners in general, all human beings, right? He's talking about the fact that the religious leaders at the time they called people sinners uh, who did not regard their teaching and their law seriously, who didn't abide by the teaching and, and the principles of the scribes and Pharisees at the time. They called those people, quote-unquote, sinners, those who did not regard the law carefully and seriously. They called them sinners, and they were regarded by the religious leaders as outcasts. And so as these religious leaders are walking by, they see this meal, and it says in verse 16, they ask the disciples of Jesus, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he eating with those people who have no regard for the law of God, who don't listen to anything that we teach, who aren't, you know, modern day, who aren't in church, who care nothing for church, who have no interest in the Bible, who don't practice anything. They're just out there living however they want. And Jesus, who's supposed to be this mighty prophet of God, this holy man, here he is hanging out with people like this. Because in that time, to eat with people, and it's still kind of true today, right? Who you eat with affected your social standing. If you were a, let's say, lower class person and you ate with a upper class person, that would help your status in society. You would get a boost there and vice versa. If you were an upper class person in society and then you began to share a meal and others heard about that with lower class people, that would lower your status. And so these religious leaders are saying, why is Jesus, this supposed upper, you know, spiritually speaking, upper class person hanging out with people like this? People who don't take the law of God seriously. People who live however they want to live. They're living these, quote-unquote, wild lives. And so Jesus responds in this way. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this was actually not made up by Jesus on the spot, this saying. This was actually a famous proverb that was widely acknowledged by the religious leaders as being true. That phrase, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The religious leaders knew that proverb and they agreed with it. They agreed with it in principle that sinful people need to be reconciled to God, that people need to repent and turn to the Lord and find salvation. And they agreed with that in principle. But in practice, they made it impossible. And what do I mean by that? Because again, even though in principle they agreed, people separated from God, people living apart from God, sinners need to repent and give their lives to God, they of course affirmed that in principle, but in practice, they never hung out with quote-unquote sinners. They wanted nothing to do with those people. And therefore, 
how would those people who needed the truth most ever hear that truth if the people who claimed to know the truth never hung out with the people who didn't have the truth? So in principle, they agreed it's the sick who need a physician, but in practice, they made it impossible because they never spent time with them. They never went to them. Those who believed themselves to have the truth refused to be with those who needed the truth most. Can you imagine the ridiculousness of a physician? Perhaps, actually, this is very relevant in our time right now with the outbreak. Can you imagine how silly it would be <laughs> for doctors and nurses to be like, well, I'm not going in today because there's a lot of sick people. Have you not heard about this corona? I'm not going to the hospital today. And you'd be like, what are you doing? This is the whole reason you trained your education. All those years was to prepare for moments like this where you actually know how to help people, where you can help people who are sick. What do you mean you don't want to go near sick people? That would be ridiculous. But that's exactly what was going on with the religious leaders. You claim to have the truth. You claim to know the way to God, and yet you don't want to hang out with people who don't know the way to God. You claim to be a physician, and yet you don't want to go near the sick. They agreed in principle, but in practice, they avoided the sick, and as a result, they maintained the status quo, meaning no one brought into the kingdom. They, they were, remained in their lostness. And so the challenge that we're confronted with this morning, and the, the question I want to leave us all with is, are you and I so different? Are we so different? Because I can guarantee if you're a Christian and you're here today, every one of you would agree in principle, people need the gospel. We'd all agree in principle, the world out there needs Jesus, especially those who are farthest from the truth, who've never stepped into a church and could care less, perhaps even are hostile against religion. Those people need Christ. We would all agree with that in principle, but the question is, in practice, are we helping to simply maintain the status quo? Meaning, if you look literally at who you share your table with, who you spend your time with, who you eat with, who's in your inner circle, would any of those relationships raise an eyebrow from those around you. I didn't think people like you hung out with people like that. I didn't realize people in your circle hung out with people in that circle. Would any of your relationships be surprising or do all of our friendships, all of our important relationships fall along safe, culturally predictable lines? Yeah, the Christians with the Christians, conservatives with the conservatives, liberals with the liberals, Asians with the Asians, Caucasians with the Caucasians, African-Americans with the African, right? Would they all fall along such expected lines? A sad reality is that Christians make the best evangelists in the first two years of coming to Christ. Christians are most effective in evangelism in their first two years of coming to Christ. And isn't that kind of surprising because in your first two years of coming to Jesus, you actually don't even know that much about the Bible. You know what you need to know. 
How is a person saved? By grace through faith in Christ Jesus. You know that. You know what you need to know. But there's all, you don't know all this theology. You don't know all these big terms. You just kind of know the basics. And yet, people who've been Christian for only two years or less make the most effective evangelists. How is that possible? Well, for one, it's because the impact of the gospel is still so fresh, just like Levi. How would Jesus want a person like me to follow him? And, and so they're just so floored by the grace of God that they've experienced, they invite others in, just like Levi. Come to my house for dinner tonight. You have to meet this Jesus. That freshness is there. But in addition to that freshness, here's the other thing that's statistically true, and it's a sad statistic. The reason why Christians who've been less than Christ, Christian less than two years are the most effective witnesses is because they actually have non-Christian friends. Because the reality is, for most believers, after two years, your closest relationships are only Christians. And hey, trust me, at Renewal, we're huge on community and the importance of that. You need that. But for many folks, it's at the expense of all other relationships. You, we only hang out with Christians. We only hang out with the already believing and so this is what I'm getting at when I say, are we so different? Because in principle, we will say, the world needs Christ. The lost need Jesus. But when it comes to our actual relationships, though we agree in principle, in our practice, are we and are our lives simply maintaining status quo? The great physician, on the other hand, he sought people out he saw those who needed the physician and he sought them out and he calls us he calls you and I to do the same and yes that's uncomfortable and yes that's difficult and yes perhaps humanly speaking you wonder yeah but could someone like that would someone like that be ever be interested in the gospel would a person like that ever come around and give their lives to Jesus? Well, we have one great example of that right in our text. Because you see, again, you remember Levi was viewed as the absolute scum of the earth. He was viewed as someone who would never be interested in the faith. This guy is living faithlessly, just living out in total rebellion without any shame, ripping people off. And yet what happens to him? He encounters Jesus and his life is never the same. He left the booth. And you know, Levi had another name that he went by and it's Matthew. That's right. The author of the Gospel of Matthew <laughs> was once this tax collector that no one would assume would ever be interested in following God. And yet that is the power of God. Without going into my own testimony, I was that guy. That people, that guy's ne <laughs> he's never going to come around. And yet, by the power of God, the great physician grabbed a hold of my heart, brought healing to me, and transformed me. Don't put limits on who God can change. Don't put limits on who God might want to call to himself through you. But there's another important piece I want to draw out here. 
Yes, Jesus may have been hanging out with, let's just say, overt sinners in need of God's grace, in need of the great physician, but what the religious leaders failed to see, sadly, is that they were sick too. That's the irony of this whole passage. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. But the reality is, the religious leaders were sinners too. The religious leaders were sick too. It's just that in their own eyes, they didn't think so. They were filled with self-righteousness because you see, they were the ones to codify what righteousness looked like. In other words, you have the Old Testament, you know, you had the Ten Commandments, and you know what the Pharisees, the scribes, and religious leaders did? They took those commandments, and they said, and we're going to tell you what holiness looks like. And they came up with some 700 extra commands on top of what the Bible says, the Old Testament said, 700 additional practices. When you eat, it's got to look like this. And when you do this, it's got to look like that. And when you work, it's got to do like this. And when you don't work, it's got to look like that. 700 extra rules to basically codify, here's what a righteous life looked like. And you know what? Not only did they make it up, they were great at it. They codified what righteousness looked like, and then they were the best at it. And of course, because they were so good at it, they defined righteousness, and, and then they lived it, even though that definition of righteousness still fall, fell way short of true righteousness. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, where Jesus comes along and says, you have heard it said, this is what your scribes and Pharisees are teaching you. Well, they didn't go far enough in what true righteousness is. But in their minds, they thought, we figured out righteousness. Here's what it looks like. And of course, because they were good at their codified system of righteousness, they were puffed up and they looked down on those who failed to live according to those rules. Namely, people like tax collectors and sinners in their eyes. But the fact of the matter is, they were puffed up with pride. They were so self-righteous. And in the sight of God, they were just as sin-sick. In other words, at later points in the Gospels, for instance, Nicodemus, when Jesus has a meal with a guy like Nicodemus, a scribe, a religious person, in the eyes of heaven, that would have been just as shocking as sitting down with a tax collector because we're all sin-sick. It's just that some of us are better at hiding it. This happens in the church today where we codify, quote-unquote, codify, uh, um, we codify what righteousness looks like according to our standards, not even necessarily God's standards. In other words, you ever hear that word? There's a church mold. Sometimes people say there's a renewal mold or there's a Christian mold. There's a way that Christians look and talk and act. And if you can play along with those code, the codified system then people just assume, oh, you're so holy, you're so good, and you're so righteous. And then there are behaviors that fall outside of the codified system that raises everyone's eyebrows, right? So the guy who curses a lot during small group, he's dropping F-bombs, everyone's like, oh, what are you doing? You talk like that around here. What kind of language is that, right? And then someone confesses how, you know, they're sleeping around on the weekends and having lots of sex with different people. Not that I'm encouraging that, but I'm just saying, those types of things will raise the eyebrows. <gasps> oh my goodness, did you hear about so-and-so? Oh my goodness. But then, we, our lives, I'm talking about 
heavily churched people are filled with all kinds of, maybe not overt sins like that, but what, what I would call covert sins. Or as Jerry Bridges wrote a book entitled, Respectable Sins. Sin nonetheless, but it's things that we just kind of excuse and we just kind of, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, okay, okay. We just kind of shove those off to the side and we like really raising the eyebrows over that other stuff. So a few examples of respect, um, respectable sins include things, as I mentioned, such as pride, discontentment, and unthankfulness, right? Again, that's just something we, ah, yeah, yeah, everyone complains, but you know, according to God, unthankfulness, discontentment, complaining spirit is a sin. Give thanks in all circumstances? It's not a suggestion, <laughs> right? But Whoever raises an eyebrow over a super complaining person, we just write that one off. Impatience, irritability is a sin. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. But when do we ever show genuine concern in the heart of a brother and sister who's really impatient and irritable? It's always just, that's just who they are. Here's one that hits close to home in America, materialism. Your Amazon cart is never empty. You know, there's a difference between needs and wants. Needs are the things you actually need. Wants are the things that you just want. You don't necessarily need to live even though you feel like, I need it. <laughs> the reality is it's just a want. But... We live our lives just on this endless stream of needing, need, needing, wanting this, wanting that, wanting this, wanting that. Materialism is real, but you see, we never talk about it. We never bat an eye. The only thing that catches our attention are those scandalous things that we have deemed scandalous in our codified church culture, and we just let respectable sins go. Have you ever heard of a leader in a church being removed over being a, a very impatient, irritable person? Never. Oh, if they mishandled money, if they slept around, and again, I'm not saying that to minimize anything. <laughs> Those are very serious and definitely worthy of discipline. But have you ever heard of a, a leader who's super impatient with people, super irritable, ever, ever told to take time off? I can't think of anything like that. Because you see, in the church, what we tend to do is we have a codified system of righteousness that falls well below what real, real righteousness is. And as long as we're living according to the code, we feel good about ourselves. We feel better about those who are not. But you see, we're just as sin sick. We are just as sin sick as the people who are in no church this morning and could care less about what we're doing here and per perhaps even mock what we're doing here, but we're just as sin-sick and apart from God's grace, we are no better. And it's only when we understand that we are as desperately in need of the great physician, only when you see that, the more that you see that, then the more your heart becomes truly grateful like Levi and then not only truly grateful and refreshed in the wonder of God's grace to you, but you become the kind of person who wants to invite others in. If he can save someone like me, he could save anybody. 
I want you to meet this Savior who has absolutely changed my life. Now let's move to the second scene when the religious leaders take issue over the subject of not their feasting, but over fasting. In the Old Testament, only one day was designated for fasting, the Day of Atonement. But then by the time of the prophets, there were a few more occasions added. And then by the time of Jesus, there were a lot more occasions for fasting added. The Pharisees fasted Mondays and Thursdays. The disciples of John the Baptist also regularly fasted. And those were the two like popular groups at the time, right? The Pharisees who were kind of the mainstream teaching what true righteousness looks like, right? Everyone pretty much listened to everything they said, right? And they fasted all the time. Then you had the John the Baptist crew who was the a recent rising popular group before Jesus came and they fasted all the time. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, he and his disciples, they don't fast. And so everybody notices this and, you know, they basically confront Jesus' disciples. How come you guys don't fast? Why do you guys not fast? And so when confronted about it in verse 18, Jesus explains by using the analogy of a wedding, right? And so if I could just summarize it, I'll put it like this. Fasting then and even now, is an ex- a physical expression, a physical expression of our longing for God to fulfill his promises. That's a simple way of putting it. It's, it's physically expressing through either abstaining from food or abstaining from something, so, something else. It's, this, it's a, physically, a physical way of expressing this longing for God to fulfill his promises. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. All of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And so his whole point is the reason my disciples don't fast is because what is fasting? Longing for God's promises to be fulfilled? Well, listen, I'm the one in whom all those promises are fulfilled. So fasting while I'm here physically present is like being at a wedding and sitting there all sad and gloomy or vice versa. Being at a funeral and celebrating. It doesn't fit the mood. It doesn't fit the atmosphere. It doesn't fit the occasion. Then Jesus says, now there's a time where the Son of Man, I will leave. And then they're going to fast again, which is New Testament fasting. We long for God to fulfill fully all his promises, to restore all things and make it all new, right? But he says, while I'm with them, yeah, there's no need to fast. It wouldn't fit the occasion. And then he shares two more metaphor, metaphors of an unshrunk cloth and uh, patching an unshrunk clean, uh, piece of cloth onto an old garment and then putting new wine into old wineskins. And he's just further elaborating on the point. And the point of both of these metaphors is simply this, to stress this. Old ways of doing. Old ways of doing and being need to either be left behind or reassessed in light of Jesus' coming. Old ways of doing and being need to either be left behind or or reassessed in light of Jesus' coming. That's the point of the cloth and the wine illustrations. And if you don't reassess or even leave those old ways behind, it will be destructive. Hence the imagery of tearing cloth and bursting wineskins. Now, let me you know, flesh this out for us. Perhaps an immediate application we could use right now is in this season of Lent, some of you are perhaps fasting or people all around us in the city are fasting. 
Now, for some people, maybe the mentality might be, and the reason you fast and you like don't eat chocolate or something you really like is kind of a form of self-punishment where you show God how sorry you are and in, as God looks down and sees how you're beating yourself up and how you're really sorry, it'll move his heart to forgive you. Right? Perhaps some people think like that and approach fasting that way. But what do we know in light of Christ? You don't need to beat yourself up, punish yourself to get God to forgive you. Jesus was beat up. Jesus was punished in your place so that God would forgive you. It's not about penance. The reason we fast now is to simply say, God, I long for you to fulfill all of your promises in and through Jesus. I long for that day when everything will be made new. Or the reason I fast is, Jesus, I don't do this to get you to love me. I already know that you love me. And this fasting is just an expression of just wanting to experience more of your love. That's it. So this is an example of Perhaps someone's old way of thinking was, I beat myself up, I punish myself to get God to love me. Well, that needs to be left behind. And if you don't leave that behind, that is destructive. If that's the way you fast as a Christian, that is not good. That is not healthy. You need to fast in light of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, in light of his coming. But there are even more applications than just fasting. More than just fasting. I believe this principle of reassessing our life in light of Jesus' coming, which will lead us to leaving old ways behind or reassessing how we've approached things, that should happen in all of your life, not just in your fasting part of your life, in all of life. When the Apostle Paul says, right, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he doesn't say, if anyone is in Christ, that person now becomes a little bit more morally well-behaved. That person is just kind of a better version of their old selves. No, it says, if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. You don't just slap Jesus on to your old life. You become a totally new creation. Levi didn't just get a little bit more religious and start going to synagogue. He became a totally different person. He left the tax booth. He became an apostle, writing the scriptures here. Totally new creation. You don't just slap Jesus on to old ways of being. When Jesus makes his home in your heart, he doesn't come and just kind of do a little paint job here and there, put some new furniture. He does the extreme home makeover. You know, there's a difference when you redo a home versus putting a few coats of paint up and some new curtains. That's all cosmetic versus going into that house and stripping it down to the beams, the studs and rebuilding the whole thing from the inside out. But that's what Jesus does. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his book, Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping leaks in the roof, and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. 
it is not just our fasting practices. Every aspect of our life must be reassessed, reshaped, reformed in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ instead of trying to just slap Jesus on to old ways of being. What does this look like? A few examples. One of the things that breaks my heart these days is Sir story surfacing of prominent leaders in the church being removed from positions of leadership over discipline issues. More specifically, prominent leaders of some large megachurch type churches influencing thousands, writing books, and here's, here's, the, here's the part that's so hard for me to reconcile. Some of these leaders are writing books on the importance of gospel-centered living like we talk about here at Renewal. <laughs> Gospel-centered ministry. Keep Jesus central. Amen and amen. But then what happens? These stories come out, you peel the, the layer back from the church and you look under the hood and you realize they were very abusive leaders, abused their authority. The entire culture of the church was one of high achievement and performance where if you're not slick enough, if you're not articulate enough, if you don't do good enough work, you get reamed out, you get chewed out. That's worldly behavior. And yet on Sunday, gospel-centered, gospel, it's all about Jesus. But what's actually driving that organization, the engine of it, was achievement, performance, prove your worth. You see, that's slapping Jesus on to old ways of being. That's just slapping Jesus like a, like a veneer like a, just a cheap paint job, you just slap Jesus on, but underneath it's rotten. And it's destructive. You think of politics. One of the most helpful things I've ever heard, and it's so very true. Jesus does not neatly fall into any of our political categories. He is far too liberal for conservatives. And he is far too conservative <laughs> for liberals. He doesn't fit neatly in any of our boxes, and don't try to do it. But you see, what often happens is because one aspect of Jesus' teaching, one aspect of Jesus' teaching and values happens to resonate with, with the way a, a certain politician feels, they'll even quote Jesus and put that out there. You see, the Bible says, Jesus says, but underneath it, what's driving it is not a love for Jesus and a desire to make much of his kingdom. It's, it's what's driving it is a vision for, that they have for the kind of world that they want to see, not the kind of world Jesus wants to see. And so they conveniently just slap Jesus onto their own agenda, and that's destructive. Socially speaking, church can easily become, and we, we talked about this at the congregational retreat, but I'll just reiterate it. Church can easily become just a social club where you just slap the name Jesus, but the real reason we meet is because I get to hang out with people who look like me and think like me and act like me. It's just a safe social space for me. And here's the thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with church being a safe social space for you. That's, that's okay, but if that's all it is, I could put it this way. Church to be a safe social space for you in and of itself is not a sin. By itself it is. If that's all it is at the end of the day so that I can just have people who look like me, talk like me, hang out with me, eat what I eat, that is not the church. 
That's taking Jesus and just slapping on top of your social club and calling it church. The church is meant to be far more than that. And if we do that, you see, all those are examples I try, I'm trying to give us of you're just, your old ways remain, you just slap Jesus on, as we said, that's destructive to self and destructive to others. Think about how much damage has been done in this country by people who've been under abusive leaders like this, who talked about Jesus, but who were hard-driving, authoritarian, abusive, maybe even sexually abusive. But think about how much damage is done. How many people have walked away from the church because of toxic leadership? Because they just slapped Jesus onto old and worldly ways of being. Think about all those who don't want to be Christian because in their minds, being Christian means identifying with a particular political party or figure. If that's what Jesus and being a Christian means, I want nothing to do with that, even though that is not what it means to be a Christian. Think of all the damage that's done by those who have felt ostracized at church because they didn't fit the culture of the church. And I'm not talking about gospel culture. The gospel culture is what should drive everything. But I'm talking about some other culture that is, becomes the prevailing culture. And so because of that, people feel ostracized. Think about how tragic that is. It happens all the time. But not only is it damaging to those around us, it damages you. And the reason is, those old ways of doing and being are simply clinging on to your old idols. That's what's driving it all. I want to have a, space place, a safe place where I belong because I'm lonely in this world. Where should our ultimate, ultimate relational need and where does ultimately our deep, deep loneliness get addressed? It's in Jesus, not in finding the right social circle. People have this fear of the future of this country. And so because of it, they act in all kinds of ways. Where is our ultimate hope in this world? It's never in any political party or earthly leader. It's only in King Jesus. Where as we think about toxic leadership, why do people act like that? Performance, achievement. It's because they're trying to find their value and worth through that. But where is our value and worth and significance ultimately found only in Jesus? And so it's only as we turn away from these old idols, leave those old ways behind, and say, what should my life look like with Christ truly at the center? And what old ways do I need to leave behind? Author Anne Lamott says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> right? We're all guilty of this. I think God looks and things like that, but you're just projecting your own thoughts onto God rather than worshiping him for who he is. Only when we remember that all other things you look to for your satisfaction, your security, your significance will leave you empty. Only Christ fulfills. And it's only when we are reminded of that and turn to him that we are freed once again to be reminded, look, the bridegroom, the only one who can truly satisfy your heart, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, has already come. And he invites you to his table. And when you feast at his table truly, that's what's going to enable you to fast from your idols. I don't need that anymore. 
I don't need to eat at that table anymore because my soul is filled in Christ. And when your soul is filled in Christ, then you become like Levi, the kind of person that invites others. Now, you, I want you at this table as well. I want you to encounter Jesus. I want you to find him and feast on him that he might satisfy your soul and make you new as he has done for me. Let's pray.